Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 59. After Hours, The Barfield Buffet, Part 1. Hello everyone. Today is the final Thursday in April, meaning that this should be the last episode in Barfield month. But it's not. Over the past month, we've been looking at the life and the work of Owen Barfield, the first and last inkling. We've spoken to his grandson, Owen A. Barfield. We've looked at his literature and poetry with Jake Graffenstedt. And we've looked at how Tolkien manifested some of Barfield's ideas surrounding language with Rob Coons. And last week, we spoke to Mark Vernon about his book, The Secret History of Christianity, applying Barfield's ideas surrounding the evolution of consciousness to the story of salvation history. And over the course of this month, I've had a number of Barfield fans and scholars reach out to me. And so I decided to host what I'm calling a Barfield Buffet. I've invited these fans and scholars to tell me about how they came across Barfield and to talk about some of the value that they find in his work. And what I've done is I've stitched all of these different monologues together. And today I'm sharing part one of the buffet, the appetizer course, if you will. Do buffets have courses? Anyway, uh, today I'm sharing part one, and next Thursday I'll be sharing part two of the collection, just because I had so many folks wanting to share their Barfieldian experiences. Now, before we jump in, I do want to share a quote of the week, and this comes from Barfield's book, Night Operation. He writes, When the velocity of progress increases beyond a certain point, it becomes indistinguishable from crisis. For my drink of the week, I'm enjoying some black tea with milk, now that Lent is over, and I hope that you've also got something tasty to enjoy while you sit back and enjoy this Barfield Buffet. And we begin with a former guest of the show, Dr. Charlie W. Starr, teacher of English and Humanities at Aldous Broadus University, and he's also the author of The Fawn's Bookshelf. And back in episode 49, I interviewed Dr. Starr about the Archangel Fragment, as well as the other books that he's written. When we were chatting beforehand about the podcast and our plans to do a Barfield month, he wrote to me in an email, So I'm teaching this Inklings doctoral program with Northwind Seminary, and in addition to team teaching the Lewis course, I'm teaching the Tolkien course, and was crazy enough to volunteer for the Barfield course. So after we had finished talking about the Archangel Fragment, I asked Dr. Starr to give our listeners a 15-20 minute summary of Barfield's life, work and ideas. And I thought that would be a useful recap as we turn the final corner of Barfield Month. So, without any further ado, here's Dr. Charlie W. Starr. Tolkien once said regarding Inklings meetings, when all the Inklings would gather together, that the only person who could stand up against Lewis's logic and rhetoric was Owen Barfield. And um, as you read through Barfield, you you really realize that he was a, a genius as a philosopher. Now, he has written some literature, which I don't think is, is on the level of, of either Lewis or, or, or Tolkien. Um, but as a thinker, he's really something. But sometimes his wording is obscure, and that has in part to do with the nature of what he believed about knowledge. Sometimes he's, he's purposely difficult and hard to follow and understand. And, and so it's, it's, it's hard for people to get into uh, Barfield, but uh, just a few things about him, and then we can talk a little bit about his ideas. Uh, Barfield and Lewis met in the 1920s when they were both students at Oxford. Barfield would go on to become a, a lawyer, a solicitor, 
which um, he didn't really like doing, but it paid the bills. And he really enjoyed a kind of a second career after he was able to retire from that. And he lived till he was 99, I think. So he got to spend uh, much of his later life in doing a great deal of writing um, and being a a celebrity. He did sort of write on the coattails of C.S. Lewis in order to do that. But Barfield was never a Lewis champion. He critiqued Lewis. Um, He was Lewis's dear friend. And when he disagreed with him, he had reasons for disagreeing with him. Um, Something else that's very important about Owen Barfield. We frequently give credit to Tolkien, and rightly so, for being instrumental in Lewis's conversion to Christianity. Uh, Talking about a a conversation about myth um, that happened on a night in September of 1931 that finished the the long journey of bringing Lewis um, back to the church. But probably far more credit should go to Owen Barfield because Barfield taught Lewis some really important things that ultimately made Lewis give up being an atheist, if not becoming a Christian. So for example, he taught Lewis that reason cannot be valid if the universe is nothing but materialistic. If there is not some mind, capital M, behind all things, then there is no reason we should trust brains to uh, come to reasonable conclusions about much of anything. Uh, So Barfield taught Lewis that there has to be something transcendent. Another thing that Barfield taught Lewis was to give up what Lewis called his chronological snobbery, which was a belief that we in our age know better than the previous ages did. And it seems to me that chronicle snobbery was at its height in the 19th and 20th centuries. I think in postmodernism, there's a little bit more humility when it comes to uh, knowledge and truth, but maybe not a ton. Lewis called his 10-year conversation with Barfield throughout the 20s their great war. And uh, they wrote extensive philosophical documents back and forth to each other, many of which still survive. Uh, One of those is a large um, Lewis document called the Summa from his pre-Christian days. And the Summa is currently available at Taylor University. It has been published once, along with other key Great War documents. Um, But to read Lewis and, uh, and Barfield doing their Great War discussions going back and forth is honestly oppressive for most of us. So unless you are truly into, unless you're committed to studying Lewis as philosopher, uh, like people like Adam Bartman or Norbert Feinendegen or Aaron Smild or Stephen Thorson, then um, those documents are, are, are going to be really, really hard on you. Uh, Stephen Thorson, by the way, and I forgot to bring the book to uh, remind myself of the title, but Stephen Thorson, T-H-O-R-S-O-N, Stephen with a P-H, has written a very nice book on the Lewis Barfield Great War, and is probably the best book out there right now that just focuses on uh, on the Great War. So I think Barfield is far more instrumental in Lewis becoming a theist than Tolkien was in Lewis becoming a Christian who was a theist. Without Barfield, you wouldn't have got the other. So a brilliant man. Um, he wrote in a number of different languages, and it's just frightening. Uh, the kind of work he did and and the kinds of things that he studied. He studied so many different things. He was an expert in Coleridge and an expert in Goethe. And he didn't just study Goethe, the poet. He studied Goethe, the scientist, 
Um, he was incredibly well read on the whole history of science and how scientific thought developed. Um, but then what about Barfield's ideas? Um, well, I will mention that for those of your, your listeners who do want to try to read some Barfield, there are three books you should look at, um, or at least one. And the first book you should look at is Poetic Diction, A Study in Meaning. This is the book that had the most influence on Lewis and Tolkien, especially their theories on myth. The other two books that will probably get you a good Barfield primer are going to be Barfield's Saving the Appearances, A Study in Idolatry, and his book Worlds Apart. But there's there's another, you know, 15 more Barfield books after that, too. Uh, Quickly, a few of Barfield's uh, ideas then. He believed in the evolution of consciousness. This is to say that Barfield believed that the way we think today and the way we perceive reality today isn't the same way human beings have always thought and perceived reality. In ancient times, we thought radically different. We perceived reality radically different uh, than we do now. He believed that ancient thinking was mythic thinking and that mythic thinking was more holistic than it is today. So that today where we separate the abstract from the concrete, the uh, symbolic from the literal, that's a big one for him. These kinds of separations, even the subject from the object, these kinds of separations, Barfield things simply did not exist in human thinking in the past. And he sees that then, especially in the nature of, of words. And I'll talk more about that here in, in just a minute. But he saw that ideas that maybe it's worth reading a, um, a, a great Barfield quote. Um, Men do not invent those mysterious relations between separate external objects and between objects and feelings or ideas, which it is the function of poetry to reveal. These relations exist independently, not indeed of thought, capital T, but of any individual thinker. And according to whether the footsteps are echoed in primitive language or later on in the made metaphors of poets, we hear them after a different fashion and for different reasons. The language of primitive men reports them as direct perceptual experience. The speaker has observed a unity and is not therefore himself conscious of relation but we in the development of consciousness have lost the power to see this one as one. Our sophistication like Odin's has cost us an eye, and now it is the language of poets insofar as they create true metaphors, which must restore this unity conceptually after it has been lost from perception. So that's not quite the one that I wanted to read, but that's all right. Um, There is interconnectivity between objects and ideas. And that interconnectivity doesn't just exist inside our heads, it exists outside our heads. There are meanings. Thus, if we take um, the, the biblical word for spirit, it is also the word for wind. And what Barfield would say is, the history of words is not a history of men assigning the word wind to this thing that is the wind, and then making a symbolic or poetic connection to uh, being inspirited or inspiration or breath or the spirit. Breath is another meaning of the word spirit, but that all three of those meanings 
spirit as something supernatural, spirit as the wind, spirit as um, the breath. All three of those meanings were inherent in the word from the beginning because that's how people thought. And those connections weren't merely symbolic connections. They were true metaphors. They were, they were real. Barfield gives this really wonderful example of saying a phrase like, well, I'll, I'll apply it to a situation for today. If I say I have no stomach for modern art, I'm saying uh, metaphorically modern art is not something I like. If I say I have no stomach for horror movies, I'm saying not only do I not like horror movies, but I also get queasy when I see excessive gore. And so here is a phrase that uh, has metaphorical meaning, but it also has literal meaning, and it has both at the same time. And Barfield said in Poetic Diction that ancient man spoke that way all the time, and that the meanings were both concrete and symbolic at the same time. If you want a nice biblical parallel, you might think of the moment when Jacob stole Esau's birthright from Isaac or stole his blessing from it. And Esau went running back to his father and said, please let me have your blessing. And Isaac said, I have already spoken it. And this is something that Lewis refers to then in that hideous strength when he says, words in ancient times were much more like physical actions. Also in a poem that Lewis wrote, The Birth of Language, you can see his Barfieldian bent toward language when he says that, you know, Mercury sends language down to earth, but as it, as it comes down into our sphere, it gets stripped of its concreteness and turned into mere abstraction. And Barfield says, that's what we suffer today, and we suffer it for a reason, but we will be heading back then to a, a, another kind of a new unity in the future that allows us to think both abstractly and concretely in a single moment again. Uh, it allows us to connect ourselves as subject with all objects around us in deeper spiritual ways. And, and so just really, really, really interesting ideas. Ultimately, Barfield believed that what, what we left behind in order to achieve personal consciousness and what we then are going to return to but still conscious of ourselves as selves is something that he referred to as concrete thought, where to think a thing is to experience a thing. And again, this is something that Lewis points out, for example, in his essay, Myth Became Fact. We can either think about something or we can experience something. You can't do both at the same time. And even if you experience the thing, you can only experience an instance of the thing. So I can laugh at a joke or I can think about why it's funny. I can't do both at the same time. But even if I do laugh at the joke, I am not meeting laughter or comedy, capital C, capital L. I am only meeting instances of laughter or comedy. The higher transcendent platonic source of the comic, uh, source of laughter, that's something we cannot meet here in what he, Lewis calls the valley of separation, the valley of abstraction. Uh, so we, uh, he says our, our thinking is incurably abstract, but heaven will be a place then where abstraction and concretion come back together. Now, Barfield doesn't think that's going to take place in heaven. Barfield thinks we're going to evolve toward that. 
Well, but but Lewis then would say, for example, in The Great Divorce, there's this um, fella uh, who, he's a theologian and he wants the free play of mind and he doesn't want answers. He wants to be able to search for truth. He says, isn't there something stifling about final answers? And his, his um, heavenly counterpart says, you believe that because you have only, so far you have only encountered truth in the abstract. I will take you to where you can drink it and be embraced by it. All right. So on earth, truth is just a bunch of ideas inside my head. In heaven, truth is a person and I get to meet him face to face. Pilate met him face to face as well. And when he said, what is truth? Jesus didn't answer because words are mere abstractions. Truth was standing right there in front of Pilate and he missed it completely. And no words at that point. Um, abstract human words are going to do any good. Uh, so for Barfield, though, um, we left that unity because we were so connected to the earth, we were not really self-aware. And we had to leave that unity behind so that we could move from the world of capital T thought into a world where we were little t thinkers. And having moved into that world then and, and achieved what he called consciousness, we will have to move back, but in a new way. So it's still an evolution. It's not a devolution. It'll still be a forward evolution where we will still be individuals, but we will achieve, um, he called the original, original participation, and then there will be a new kind of participation. This new participation will take us back to being able to connect abstract to concrete, uh, symbolic to literal object and subject. Those will reconnect in us, but at more individualistic levels. And you can see then something of what Barfield is saying echoes a little bit of what Lewis says about the Trinity, which is to say, when we go to heaven, we will become more ourselves than we could ever be here on earth. And yet there will be a unity as we enter into the Zoe life of Christ and that he talks about in mere Christianity, a unity where the body of Christ is not merely a metaphor, but has some sort of concrete reality to it in the heavenly world. We join into the same kind of super personal life that God shares in, in the three persons of the Trinity. We will join into that kind of life with Christ. Now, we should also mention, though, that Barfield believed everything and a lot of what I just talked about what Barfield believed is a, a system of thought called anthroposophy or anthroposophy that was championed by a philosopher named Rudolf Steiner. Um, Barfield believed Steiner was a genius and in the end Lewis rejected anthroposophy. Anthroposophy is probably the right way to pronounce it. Uh, Lewis rejected that and the Catholic Church I believe sometime in the 19 teens called it a heresy. Barfield was committed to it, and I think we need to study Barfield in order to understand Lewis and Tolkien better. And again, if nothing else, just poetic diction would be the place to go if you just want to focus most of your attention on Lewis. But yeah, I don't know that Barfield's ideas about the nature of the divine are orthodox. And one of the challenges I know, and I'll conclude with this, one of the challenges I know that I'm going to face when I teach this as a graduate class sometime I think this summer or in the fall, the challenge will be trying to tell my students what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to believe in Barfield, or at least as Coleridge would say, suspend our disbelief so that we can come to understand him. 
you can't critique Barfield till you are starting to think Barfield. And then maybe you can critique him. But the first thing we're going to have to do is just surrender to him and hopefully try to make some sort of sense of him. Because I just gave you all the easy stuff. I'm still wrestling with the rest of myself. And I don't know, I don't know how I'm going to pull that off. But here we go. We'll find out. As Dr. Starr was talking about the conversation between Pilate and Jesus, I remember something that I learned many years ago. And I think it was when I was reading Bill Bryson's book, Uh, about the history of the English language called the mother tongue. And in that book, he said that anagrams were all the rage in the Roman Empire, which isn't really surprising since these were the days before YouTube, so what else are you going to do? Anyway, the author gave an example of a Latin phrase, which is an anagram, and the phrase sounded rather familiar to me. The phrase is quid es veritas. This is the rather cynical question asked of Jesus by Pilate. What is truth? And even though I don't think Bryson connected this phrase with this event, it turns out that there is a rather appropriate anagram of Pilate's words. The letters in quides veritas can be rearranged to form est via quia dest, the translation of which is, it is the man who is here. So what is truth? It is the man who is here, it is a person, the God-man Jesus Christ, which I think is pretty cool. Anyway, next up we have Landon Lofton, a hospital chaplain and PhD student from Missouri, who is currently preparing to write his dissertation on Barfield. He has a peer-reviewed paper for Seven, which is the journal of the Wade Center at Wheaton, called Barfield and the Modern Crisis of Meaning. So here's Landon Lofton. My name is Landon Lofton. My interest in Barfield began while I was working on my master's thesis on the role of the imagination in theology and apologetics. In my thesis, I developed and defended C.S. Lewis's understanding of the imagination as the organ of meaning, as opposed to reason, which he described as the natural organ of truth. I hadn't gotten far into my research, however, before I realized that I couldn't get much beneath the surface of Lewis's view without reading a few of Barfield's major works, particularly poetic diction a book that had considerable influence over Lewis's views on the subject and many others. I found that it enriched my understanding of Lewis, sometimes as a complement to his thought and sometimes as an opposing voice. The latter, of course, explains the inscription that Barfield chose in dedicating poetic diction to Lewis, that is, in opposition, is true friendship. Anyway, my interest was sufficiently piqued that the first thing I wanted to do after completing my thesis was a more thorough survey of Barfield's work. Though I found his work difficult, full of what Lewis described as, quote, Owen's dark, labyrinthine, pertinacious arguments, it proved to be worth all the effort. I found that Barfield provides everything a person could want in a writer. That is to say, his books are at once wide-ranging, intellectually stimulating, aesthetically pleasing, and spiritually edifying. A theme of particular interest to me is a hospital chaplain who works daily with people who are struggling with a sense of meaninglessness, spiritual emptiness, is of course Barfield's account of the much discussed modern crisis of meaning. He accounts for the uniquely modern sense of general meaningless in terms of the evolution of consciousness, which briefly, for anyone who isn't familiar with it, it's a theory which posits a process of fundamental change in the way the human mind relates to the world around it. And on a deeper level, 
It's about the fundamental character of the world itself. The relevant aspect of this theory is the historical change in human consciousness which is revealed in the history of language, and that is from conscious participation in the life of nature, which characterizes the pre-modern mind, to the self-conscious observation of nature, which characterizes the modern mind. Put differently and less abstractly, the ancient mind was in the collective habit of seeing the whole world in a way that we might see a poem or a human face. That is, as something that stands for something more than itself. The text of a poem is not merely ink on a page. It has meaning. It leads the receptive reader to participate in the thoughts and feelings of its author. Likewise, the human face in George MacDonald's fitting words is that living, eternal, changeful symbol which God has hung in front of the unseen spirit. On Barfield's account, ancient people were in the habit of seeing all things as signs hung in front of the unseen world of spirit. We, on the other hand, look at the world around us largely as a collection of lifeless objects to be manipulated for our own purposes. Or, returning to the poem analogy, we look at the world like a man who examines the texture of the paper on which a poem is written and comments on the shape of the ink marks he finds on it, but he remains inattentive to all that the marks represent. There is, of course, a lot of practical utility in our hyper-focused attention on the outer appearances of nature. It accounts for the astonishingly rapid advances in science and technology that we've seen since modernity was initiated by the scientific revolution. But this scientific and technological prowess has come at a cost. Like Odin, Barfield tells us, we've purchased our sophistication at the cost of an eye. Our vision is therefore myopic. We're experts in matter, but ignorant of spirit. Of course, I'm not in the habit of explaining the technicalities of Barfield's theory to patients in the hospital, but my work as a chaplain has been greatly improved by Barfield's insights into the context of consciousness, if you will, in which the people I encounter are trying to find meaning in their lives and trying to make sense of their suffering. Also, it gives me a conceptual framework and a vocabulary for talking about the fundamental assumptions and attitudes that blind us to the inherent meaning of the world, and some important clues as to how we can mitigate or even overcome this modern spiritual blindness. I'm working now on some new projects. For instance, I want to find new ways of applying Barfield's distinction between the history of ideas and the history or evolution of consciousness. Barfield often suggests how accounts of the history of ideas fail to pay sufficient attention to changes in consciousness. They're therefore incomplete at best, or at worst, entirely mistaken. One that he mentions in passing, which I'm working on developing more fully, involves the history of logic, the rejection of the Aristotelian framework for logic, which had been the standard system in the West since Aristotle conceived it. Among other things, those who sought to replace it objected to the idea of logical predication, which was the foundation of the Aristotelian syllogism. Their objection, in Barfield's words, was this. If I say a horse is an animal, then A, if by the word horse I mean something more or less or other than an animal, I've told a lie. But B, if I do not mean by horse anything more or less or other than I mean by animal, I've said almost nothing for I might as well have said, a horse is a horse. What's difficult to account for is the fact that almost no one seriously raised this sort of objection to logical predication for almost 2,000 years, but then it suddenly began to appear to many philosophers as obvious, clear, and decisive. 
It's difficult to account for, that is, unless we first accept that the dramatic change came at a time in which, according to Barfield's accounts of the evolution of consciousness, the last vestiges of participation were rapidly fading from human consciousness. And then we realize that logical predication assumes participation, as many, like Aristotle himself and Thomas Aquinas, had pointed out. I think the interest in Barfield is growing. I hope that that trend continues. I'd encourage anyone who's listening who's not read Barfield for themselves to do so. I'm sure you, like me, will find it difficult and very rewarding. When I was chatting with Landon, he said that he aspires someday to legitimately claim the title of Barfield Scholar. Well, to me, it sounds like he's already very much on his way. Next up, we have Dr. Troy Vine. Troy Vine started out as a physicist, but reading Barfield inspired him to do a second PhD, this time in philosophy, in which he explores the development of the conception of color from Descartes, via Newton and Goethe, to Wittgenstein. He's just started teaching a short online course on Barfield, focusing on two particular works, Poetic Diction and Saving the Appearances. Here's Dr. Troy Vine. My name is Troy Vine. I've recently started working at Schumacher College in Dartington, and I run the Holistic Science Masters there. I'm also finishing off a second PhD at Humboldt University in Berlin. So I'm straddling Britain and Germany, uh, which is proving interesting at the moment. <laughs> I first heard about the Inklings um, at school. I went to a Waldorf school, so that was one of the canonical figures for people who are interested in science, such as myself. Although, so I, he was a kind of household, not a household name, but a kind of familiar name. It wasn't until I'd finished uh, my first PhD in particle physics that I then started reading Barfield, and that caused my life to take quite a different turn. So what I liked about Barfield was the way he put science into a historical and philosophical context. And that was something that I just hadn't really been exposed to uh, before. It's the kind of question that my supervisor at uh, University College London would say, ah, oh, that's a question for down the pub later, uh, whenever I veered off into those territories. And, and so, yeah, that was just a real kind of eye-opener to the historical nature of science. I hadn't really read um, Thomas Kuhn at that point. Uh, so, that, so, so Barford really was my first uh, introduction to looking at science as, as an unfolding historical process. Yes, what is anthroposophy? So Barfield in Saving the Appearances makes two kind of passing remarks, one to Goethe and one to Steiner as being inaugurators of what he calls final participation. And then the big question is, who are these people? What did they do? So Goethe, I've spent the last 10 years probably studying the work of, of Goethe, so I understand that fairly well. Um, Steiner's more complicated in some ways because he did so much varied stuff. So on the one hand, he founded uh, Waldorf schools, uh, biodynamic farming. And on the other hand, he wrote kind of philosophical treaties. Um, so he's a, he's a very difficult character to, to really understand actually, and to really have a kind of overview of. Um, and that's also not helped by the fact that he has a following of 
people of different kinds, some of which are quite strange <laughs> and, and hard to understand. But one thing that I was, I was recently asked to talk to, to teach um, Steiner's book, uh, I think the English title is called A Study of Man, which is a terrible translation uh, of the German, um, a, a, a literal translation would be general anthropology. And this was a talk, a talk Steiner gave to the teachers of the New Waldorf School. And basically, the intention of the course was sort of to say, this is what you need to know about what the human being is if you are to teach in an anthroposophical way. And what really struck me in that book, having read Barfield, was the way Steiner, he talks about the body, the soul, and the spirit. And certainly in the English language, you know, we, we, we're kind of wondering, the, the kind of body, we have a fair idea. The soul, yeah, maybe, you know, the, the world of our feelings. And, and then the spirit, you know, really difficult. And like, what's the difference between the soul and the spirit? And, you know, you kind of can very quickly go into very strange metaphysical areas. But the way Steiner in, introduces it, he says, well, you know, if we look at our, our daily lives, we have a period in our, each day when we're awake, and we have a period in which we're asleep. And then in between, we have this period in which we dream. So he develops this very basic idea of waking, dreaming, sleeping into his conception of the body, soul, and the spirit. So when we are awake, that's when we are in our body. And when we are dreaming, that's when we're in our, our soul. And then when we're in a deep sleep, that's when we're in our, our spirit. And that way of using language, you know, sleeping, waking, dreaming, to develop a spiritual picture of, of the human being, if you like, that reminded me very much of the way Owen Barfield talks about the short excerpt from, from the poem, was it Wordsworth? I think it was Wordsworth, uh, Shelley, Shelley, when he says, my soul is an enchanted boat. And so one can apply in a way a very similar kind of metaphorical analysis to Steiner's work as Barfield applied to Shelley's work in poetic diction. So that's why I see a kind of close affinity between what Steiner's doing and the kind of poetic um, diction that Barfield is, is, um, speaks about in his, in his book, Poetic Diction. So I'm going to be teaching um, an, an online course on Owen Barfield's two major works, Poetic Diction and Saving the Appearances. And I'm gonna be teaching what I think are, are key ideas from these, these two works. Poetic Diction is quite a difficult work. And the reason for that is he provides, in my reading of, of the work, he provides a, a methodological tool, which is an understanding of metaphor. And he applies that more or less for just one word, ruo or ruin in, in Latin. And that short overview, in a way, is not really, and I, I found kind of reading that book, first of all, that, that short overview didn't really give me an understanding of the methodological depth of his tool, uh, which is his understanding of metaphor. And when I read Saving the Appearances, I realized that was the result of that kind of methodological tool, but in saving the appearances, he didn't really spell out what his method was. So for me, these two books really belong together as, as a single work. Um, one that 
in, in, investigates the methodology and one that then applies it to the Western religious, scientific and poetic canon. Next up, we have Dr. Max Leif. Max is a certified rolfer, philosopher and anthroposopher from Anchorage, Alaska. He blogs at theoriapress.wordpress.com and is the author of The Redemption of Thinking, a study in truth, knowledge and the evolution of consciousness with special reference to Johann von Goethe, Owen Barfield and Rudolf Steiner. Here's Dr. Max Leif. People often see Barfield as a kind of, uh, with a little bit of skepticism, they see Barfield as a gateway drug to Rudolf Steiner and Steiner's uh, system of anthroposophy. And I understand people's reservations, but it's quite funny because for me, I guess Barfield is a gateway in that sense, but for me it was the opposite direction. And somehow I, I encountered Steiner and that, that itself is an interesting story. But I just, um, I was sort of just willing to, uh, to take the leap and see where it went. And all I can say is that when I first encountered Steiner, two things became evident to me. One is that I didn't have any clue what he was talking about. The first, actually, the first work that I read was, it was a transcription of his lecture cycle that he did on the Gospel of John. And uh, I, was, I was just totally at sea. Like, I had no idea what he was talking about. That's one thing that occurred to me. But the second thing was that there's something here, there's something here that's worth um, pursuing until you do understand it. This is the sort of feeling that I had. I had to, to, to work with it. And I guess even to this day, I, I, I won't claim that, I, that it's entirely transparent to me. But at the same time, all I can say is that I haven't, have, certainly haven't regretted it. Uh, to get back to Barfield, I was familiar with his name, as many people are, I think, that are familiar with C.S. Lewis. Um, I, you know, I'd heard his name before, so it was immediately familiar. And once I saw the connection to uh, Steiner's work and anthroposophy, then it was just very natural. And, and I find Barfield just so congenial. Like everything he says, I just have this feeling of like, of course, <laughs> of course. I don't know how to describe it, but I just feel like Barfield might, might have been an old friend or something. Or an old teacher, I guess, is a better way to think about it. I just feel so grateful for people like Barfield who have, you know, just left us this kind of, this kind of inheritance in terms of knowledge and, and philosophy and, and anthroposophy. I think Barfield is so helpful for, actually, for this the same reason that people are, can be skeptical of him, which is as a kind of a bridge to Rudolf Steiner's teaching. Many people, again, find Rudolf Steiner's teaching to be just sort of impenetrable at best. Often it seems even nonsensical or something, maybe even dangerous, I don't know. Barfield, I think he has such a gift of taking immensely, I don't want to say complicated or abstract exactly, that's not the right word, but they're like grand thoughts. Thoughts that, that it's like you, you really have to reach with your mind to even touch those thoughts. He has the ability to take thoughts like that and, and communicate them in a way that's, you know, at least it's intelligible to people, actually. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, it's such a gift that he has. And so I think even if he didn't have a single original thought, that would already be a, an immense contribution. I, I do class Barfield as, you know, one of the greats for his ability just to, to communicate with such clarity. And, and this is something you, 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 uh, you certainly would not say this as a blanket statement about philosophers but it's really fun and enjoyable and pleasant to read Barfield. He takes this element that is kind of uh, latent in you know, virtually all of Steiner's teaching, which is the idea that um, when we think of consciousness, and by that it's like our, um, 
our interface with the world, our experience of the world, but not the experience as a product, but rather the um, the experience as a um, as it's coming into being, like as a as an appearance, as a verb rather than a noun. I guess is a way to think about it. Um, our experiencing of the world, maybe you could say it like that. We might think like I don't know when you read ancient ancient works. Homer is always the sort of go-to example when you read Homer that you're reading a story by people who had the same consciousness, like the same mode of experiencing. Um, so they just looked out of their eyes and things looked just the same as they do to us today. The evolution of consciousness suggests that that's almost the opposite of the truth. And that in fact, consciousness over time has undergone profound changes. Um, and that's something that, that Steiner, uh, he never loses the opportunity to just recapitulate these, um, these epochs that he divides humanity into. And, and those, um, that's, that those are among Steiner's, um, you know, especially kind of inaccessible or esoteric teachings where he'll divide, he'll, he'll, he'll describe the ancient Indian epoch and then the Persian epoch and then the, the Egypto Chaldean epoch and then the Greco-Roman epoch and then the, and so on. It's sometimes it's hard to know what to make of that, but fundamentally he's he's talking about something that that Barfield obviously describes under a different rubric. It's just the idea that that no, in fact, people had really qualitatively, categorically different way of relating to the world. Basically, now to me, I, all I could say is I guess it's the most self-evident thing, and I don't see how how to make sense of so much that we encounter both in contemporary experience of the world, and then also how that relates, you know, how it situates us historically as human beings in the, you know, 21st century. At this point, I don't see any other way to really make sense of, of, of all those, how, how all those things hang together, I guess, is the, is the way that I would say it. And so, so it's really something that I kind of dip my toes in the waters and then just realize, like, this is the place to swim. Now we come to our final guest. Dr. Michael Vincent de Fouchier is the research lead for the Martin Institute for Christianity and Culture at Westmont College, and he's also a visiting lecturer at the London School of Theology. He is the author of Owen Barfield, Philosophy, Poetry, and Theology. In the audio which follows, he shares a little bit of his own story and about how Owen Barfield helped him wrestle with his own spiritual questions. In Roughly 2007, maybe 15 years ago or so, I was writing a thesis on the divisiveness that I saw in American Protestantism. And I sensed a sort of secular modernism had infiltrated our contemporary vision of reality, creating a bifurcation between a kind of odd rationalism or foundationalism on the one hand, the sort of thing you'd get in certain streams of evangelicalism, and on the other hand, a liberal theology or something like emotivism, to use Alistair McIntyre's word, um, which you might find in some forms of charismatic Christianity. So you could say I find myself as an evangelical kind of caught between an objectivism I inherited from a kind of propositional religious upbringing. You think in terms of apologetics uh, and giving reasons for the faith. And then this kind of mapped on to this sort of bibliolatry in a certain way of uh, objective way of reading the Bible using maybe the historical critical method. In a, in a nutshell, in this vein, I kind of learned to emphasize the objectivity of my faith. 
So what was happening to me existentially was that this sort of false foundation upon which my faith was built, um, you could maybe one of propositions, had to come crashing down, and it did for two reasons. Um, it did not accord with reality as such, which I'll touch upon in a moment, but moreover, one cannot really sustain a relationship with God, uh, nor anyone for that matter, based solely on mere beliefs, truths, or propositions, whatever one might want to call it. People, you know, are not propositions. The truth is a person who we're to encounter, uh, not kind of think about. Um, so the interesting twist in all this was that my spirituality had already begun to shift to one that was more experiential, as I suppose in response to this felt lack of connection, you might say. So I found myself gravitating towards charismatic experiential spiritualities, which is, you might say, a bit more subjectivist. So I had this kind of objective background and this desire for connection, which was bringing about more of this subjectivity, we might say. So the existential issue I was having at this time uh, while I was writing this MA thesis was that here I was as a kind of charismatic, but trying to trying to get this to fit with a kind of historical, critical, or rationalistic, foundationalist vision, um, and, it, and it simply didn't work. So my master's thesis was a sort of fumbling through this kind of existential dilemma regarding how to relate the subjective experience of the world and with God with that of this sort of fundamentalism, the fundamentalism that was undergirding it. At the time, the word postmodernism or postmodernity was quite trendy. One had to be aware of it, what it means for Christians in the church. And the mark of a good American theologian, I suppose, had to do with one's capacity to give a response to a sort of, I don't know, emerging relativism or sub subjectivism. So the trendy theologians, it seems, were those who held a kind of tension between objective truths of modernism and then the limits of knowing that postmodernity had emphasized without then succumbing to a kind of full-blown relativism. So I wrote on how the sort of new ways of knowing might sort of balance this sort of subject-object dualism that I was inhabiting. In the end, it was helpful, I suppose, to have made some sense of where American Protestantism was at the time. I think I walked away from it, though, feeling quite disappointed and disillusioned, not only with my own explorations, but with the state of American Protestantism, I suppose, more generally, particularly as at that time, 15 years ago, dividing lines were already beginning to be drawn politically. And obviously, those are exacerbated today. It wasn't until I'd completed my MA thesis, I was done, I'd graduated, I stumbled upon what I would now call the kind of great tradition of the church. Uh, I went through my entire seminary career having never once really touched a Catholic or Orthodox thinker. One contemporary author who stood out to me at this time, who was reading the, the Catholic tradition, recovering the Catholic tradition for contemporary times in fascinating ways, was an Anglican theologian called John Milbank. Reading this was kind of really my first exposure to an entirely new vision of reality, is what I would call now call it, uh, it seemed as if he'd lived in a time past and that he, he was able to see the ways in which Christianity cut through some of the dilemma 
with, uh, with which I was wrestling. And so over time, what I came to see was that undergirding both sides of my American Protestantism was the same logic. And that logic was now what I would describe as a kind of attempt to get at an unmediated vision of reality and of God, without which I sort of ended up uh, shuttling between a kind of emotivism on the one hand and a foundationalism on the other, a life with God in the heart or a life with God in the head, but it never, God never became quite incarnate in me and kind of lived out in the world around me. And I think that this idea is still very much an issue today in American Protestantism. It, it's still very much here. The word and concept of participation in Greek, it's methexis, is often used to parse through these sorts of dualisms that I was wrestling with. I, I suppose I came to discover this. This was a way of articulating a vision of God who is not unmediated, but mediated in and through all things. And that as such, all things are deeply imbued with God's meaning and purposes. This was so new in me, this concept of participation, which I won't go into detail about, but I just kind of ate it up. This idea of participation was central to John's, John Milbank's work, and um, he points to this constantly in patristic literature as a kind of way to correct the way things are today and how the loss of this vision kind of leaves us where we are. This was what I suppose most fascinated me. So my wife and I actually moved to England where I studied with John, and I was kind of immersed in this way of life and in this kind of vision. This idea of participation, this immersion in Christian ancient literature, it felt like a kind of balm, I guess, to my low Protestant dualistic wound. I was slowly learning to see God in all things, as Ignatius says. Um, so I, I really wanted to do my doctoral work on this mediatory or participatory vision. But unbeknownst, unbeknownst to me at the time, this was actually nothing new, and it was quite commonplace uh, in, in Catholic and Orthodox thought. So I, I needed to narrow my scope, and this is when John... John realized this, and he mentioned Owen Barfield. This is actually the first time I'd ever heard the name Owen Barfield. I'd read a ton of C.S. Lewis. I'd never heard the name Owen Barfield. So I then spent the next two and a half years writing uh, on what I took to be important in his thought. That was not easy. Uh, he's hard to parse. And what I took to be a central theme in his work was this same concept of participation. So I suppose that's where I find the real value in his work is, is kind of anything that kind of is, is centered upon that notion of participation. I've already touched upon, I suppose, how, it, how, how personally and spiritually this had impacted me. But now maybe I can speak from a like more theological or cultural perspective as to why I think this is, is very valuable. The first reason has to do with the fact that Barfield, I, I see him as what we might call a counter-enlightenment figure. So while many were reacting to enlightenment modes of rationality, in fact, my Christianity was that, uh, Barfield holds closely to what I might call a pre-modern worldview, a, a pre-enlightenment worldview, which allows him to diagnose and critique contemporary modes of thought in ways that aren't reactionary. So in retrieving this kind of earlier vision, Barfield looks out upon the kind of horizons of modernity and 
post-modernity with an historically rich kind of fresh set of eyes. Uh, he sees our contemporary vision, as you might say, maybe as a thinned-down perspective of what it once was, a kind of loss of meaning. So by bringing this ancient participatory vision, which I'll talk a little bit more about, forward, he tells us where we are today in kind of when things went awry in his perspective. And this has to do with when we started to separate God from creation, nature from supernature, meaning from materiality, subject from object. And so this kind of what has become now quite trendy is called a genealogical analysis, like a genealogy of thought, like how we got where we are today. It can be seen in this way, I think, as a sort of forerunner to contemporary figures like Alistair McIntyre, who does this with, with ethics and virtue, uh, Charles Taylor, the great Catholic philosopher, and then the Anglican theologian John Milbank. They're all known for kind of tracing the kind of genealogical histories and also kind of impressing upon in their work the need to return or at least bring forward, I suppose, or resource our perspectives now with more older or lost models that were lost to a sort of progressivist kind of attitude. And so they wanted to retrieve the riches of the past and kind of bring them forward. Uh, and this is what I think Barfield is, is, is doing. He is really about wanting to help people see, I suppose, as they once did. So while there should be uh, Christian anxieties about Barfield, as he does have some Gnostic tendencies, his theology and his cosmology are certainly, from an orthodox perspective, sometimes questionable. His metaphysic, however, the way he sees reality, I, I, I would argue, is very Christian. And it is, it, what, what we get in this is a kind of really high sacramentalism, is what we might want to call a sacramental vision of reality. He insisted on this, what I might call sacramental vision, in ways that I even think that Lewis, um, helped Lewis even develop this in his own intellectual development. So in this way, I have said, and I think that it seems to me that Barfield is a post-secular thinker, before it was even fashionable to be post-secular, and in this way he's quite far ahead in his time. This participatory vision was not willing really what this was really about is not a willingness to parse things out or to, to, to concede any space over to a sort of objective secular domain or reduce religion to some merely inner disposition. So along these same lines, I think the second thing that is valuable in Barfield's work is his insistence that metaphorical language best articulates or corresponds to reality. This is quite complicated in his work. I'll try to explain this as simply as possible. So for him, the imagination, the faculty of the mind that creates and apprehends metaphor is really important because it allows us to see reality as it is in a way that holds subject and object in what he calls a polar tension. He gets this from Coleridge. This can get into some heavy, heady philosophy, so let me try to summarize this by simply saying that for Barfield, metaphor and poetry allows us, in a way, to say the unsayable. It gives us a glimpse into a sacramental reality all around us 
whose meaning and essences are not reducible to a mere philosophy of subject and object that so much of the modern and postmodern project are, are kind of trying to sort out. So in other words, the moment we try to analyze poetry, the moment its meaning dissipates. In the same way, the moment we try to dissect the world around us to parse it in the so-called secular, sacred, private, public, object, subject, meaning and depths immediately is stripped away from it. So Barfield says, of course, we can distinguish things like this, these dualisms in our mind, but we're never actually dividing them. That's not how reality is. Um, so this is why in following Coleridge, Barfield saw the worlds in terms of this kind of polar tension in a way he describes this as using participation between subject and object. He sees the modern world, and in fact the one we still inhabit today, as one that tried to collapse this tension, I suppose, into a merely binary or dualistic vision, a non-participatory vision. So thus he wants to recover a more original vision again, here we are, that incorporates the imagination, the idea of inspiration, in order that we might learn to see and encounter things as they truly are, a sort of sacramental vision of a world imbued with God's meaning, to put Christian language to that. Finally, and again related to the above, there's an area of Barfield's work that is, I think still requires exploration. And that has to do with what I would call a, a sort of spiritual vision in Barfield that I'm, his, his kind of philosophy points towards. It seems to me that this vision is very much aligned with the Christian mystic and contemplative traditions that uh, we see being recovered even among Protestantism today. Barfield's idea that metaphor has a way of uniting inner and outer, or subject and object, we could say, is deeply akin to the vision of the desert mothers and fathers, the Spanish mystics like Ignatius, Teresa, John of the Cross. So much of their, so much of their language regarding the encounters with God and movements of the soul towards God is, is, of course, filled with metaphor. But that's not exactly what I think is important here. It seems that instead, um, what is more important would be that when one reads the, the work of, uh, say, the mystics or the contemplatives and actually takes on the spiritual gaze and the practices and the sorts of habits they espouse, one comes to realize that gazing upon God's creation through God's eyes, that we begin to see how the outer uh, the outer world is a kind of metaphor to our own interior life with God. That's kind of tricky, so let me try to explain this uh, using a very practical example. If, if I were to reflect contemplatively on, say, a rock in a stream, in metaphor, it turns inward. I sense my soul is bathed in the streams of his living water, and its hard edges are softened in the flow in currents of the living water. As I contemplate this, there is no longer space between me and the rock. The subject and object participate. There's no longer much of a distinction. I am no longer examining the rock. It may even be said that God, the subject, is now examining me. It certainly feels that way if you've ever had this kind of experience. I personally feel nearest to God, the God of creation, in these kind of ineffable or 
I suppose, timeless moments that cannot be controlled by proposition or explained by proposition, nor manipulated by emotion. This is the kind of experience uh, of which words fall short. They say something of the sort of felt change of consciousness. That's a phrase that Barfield uses uh, that his participatory vision is after. He says this is called the concrete experience, the moment of unity, we could say. He's constantly trying to stress in his work. Such instances, we have what, I don't know, we might call the, a fullness of a participation in God or this mystical experience with God. This is the experience I suppose that I, I suppose anyone desiring God is after. Um, I, as a low Protestant, was certainly after, um, but this kind of unmediated logic, to my mind, resisted that. I suppose we can see how this kind of inspired imagination, imaginative use of metaphor provides a momentary glimpse of heavenly realities. And now this sounds like Lewis, right? So this is similar, I think, to Lewis's vision here, his use of the German Sehnsucht as a sort of longing for God. And um, I think elsewhere I have suggested that these visions are actually very close. We often think of Barfield and Lewis as opposed in this kind of vision that Barfield has this really weird view of the imagination and Lewis has a more strict and rigid view. But I think later on in, in life, they both kind of really have this same kind of sacramental vision, if you like. So it seems to me that Barfield is right uh, in saying that in our time that is dominated by materialism and consumerism, all these kind of isms that he was atomism, he was at positivism, these things he was very... Um, critical of busyness nowadays and noise, this sort of contemplative or sacramental vision is at once so difficult to recover, yet so imperative for the future of humanity. And I think this is where Barfield is most important. Such an awareness seems to lie behind Barfield's dire insistence upon the recovery of this vision in hope for a future state of what he calls final participation where we kind of learn to see things in this participatory way, although we bring with us, of course, our newfound kind of analytical knowledge that we gain in the Enlightenment. So while Barfield was, was quite hopeful about, and much of his work can be seen as an attempt to recover this vision and, and usher in this kind of new, this new epoch in, in thought and perceptions and the way we relate to one another in reality, um, while he's quite hopeful on that, about that, I think we certainly still uh, have, a, have a long way to go. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Some pretty heady stuff, so thanks for listening. And thanks also to all of our Patreon supporters and particularly our top-tier supporters. Kevin, Brian, Kay, Monique, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Jake, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, Chris, John, James, Kate, and Rowdy. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, next Thursday we're going to be finishing up the Barfield Buffet. And in that episode, we're just going to have three interviews. One focusing on saving the appearances, another on poetic diction, and another explaining the resources which can be found at owenbarfield.org. So join us next time, when we'll continue going further up and further in. Cheers! Cheers!